If you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible with you, halfway down the aisle here are some Bibles that you can borrow for the day. Uh, feel free to grab one even now. The book of Colossians is where we'll be, Lord willing, for the next many weeks. I've been here at DSC for seven years now, and uh, in that time I've preached through several books of the Bible, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Ecclesiastes, Philippians, 2 Peter, Daniel, Luke, Proverbs, and then several other series that took parts of a book or dealt with a specific theme over several weeks. Well, today we begin a new series in this New Testament book of Colossians. And I don't know about you, but anytime we're beginning a new series, I'm excited. Partly because to preach a book of the Bible, you really have to study it as a whole. You kind of have to have a, a, a focus of where you're going before you get going. And so I have a lot of it in my head and a lot of it crammed down into my heart. And, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm eager to get after it. I hope you are too. But I want to begin this series like I have begun many other series with an overview of the book. So let me first talk about the importance of getting the whole book message in a book like Colossians. There's an importance, I think, of reading a book straight through when we can, when it's especially a shorter book, even more so when it's a letter, which was probably written intending for it to be read straight through. I think we need to read it straight through. We need various levels or kinds of investigation in our Bible reading. We need different lenses, you could say, on the camera of our snapshots of the Word of God. And so we need that wide-angle lens at times. We need sometimes something a little more closer up, sometimes very close up. Sometimes we need to be able to take that camera and put it on top of a microscope and really get a microscopic analysis of the Word of God. The Bible is a story, and it's a story with movement, development, flow. And so because we believe it's a story, and because we believe it's inspired by God down to very words, we need the panorama, and we need the microscope. We need the broad picture in the development and turns and themes in the Bible. We need to be able to ask and answer the question of what's the Bible about and have some kind of answers along the lines of God saves sinners. That'd be one way of answering what the Bible's about. But then you move into another level of analysis and you ask yourself, okay, well, what are the major turns in the Bible, the themes in the Bible that are developed? You know, you, you might know that Genesis 12 is an important turn for God's promises in his plan. You might know that there's a big difference between 1 Kings 11 and 1 Kings 12. We won't go into that today. Maybe you'll read those two chapters on your own and say, yeah, I can see how this is a development or a turn. It's a move in God's redemptive history. We need to be able to chart those out at times and then get more narrow about a specific book. What's this book about? It's written by a specific author at a specific time for a specific people to meet a specific need and to communicate a specific message or messages. And then we look closer at a chapter or, or even a paragraph, you know, a few verses at a time sometimes. And then we even get out the magnifying glass and sometimes look at very words and phrases and notice this versus that. We, we 
try to understand the word of God because it's God's word. Now, most of our Sunday mornings tend to be on the narrow side of analysis, right? A chapter or less is usually the size of material that we're trying to digest in a specific Sunday morning. But that coupled with the fact that we're a soundbite culture, that our information intake today is often very bitty, not least in part because of the, the internet and the way we receive information today. We need, because of that, occasional messages that really take a step back and give us something of the 30,000 feet picture of where God's plan is going. Now, we won't do the 30,000 foot picture today, but we maybe want to do something like a 10,000 foot picture of just the book of Colossians. Now, let me give you an example of this for your own personal Bible reading. There are different ways to go about your own personal Bible reading. Maybe you're doing a chapter a day in your own personal Bible reading. Maybe you're trying to work through the Bible in a year, and you're on some plan that has you read a chapter in three or four different parts of the Bible. So you're doing Old Testament narrative, a chapter. Uh, Psalms, narrative, a chapter. You're doing uh, the Gospels, a chapter there. And so you're slowly working your way through the Bible at different sections, at different parts of the Bible. None of those are bad. I've, all, I've done all of those before. But sometimes I've thrown in a different way to read the Bible throughout the week. And let me suggest it to you. If you currently don't have a reading plan, or maybe this will be the next one you do, or maybe you'll just use it in this next coming week as we begin a study in Colossians. It's like this. You take a smaller New Testament letter like Colossians or Ephesians or Philippians, and you read that one book every day for a whole week. So Monday, Colossians, read the whole thing. Tuesday, Colossians, read the whole thing. You get the point. And then when you get to the end of the week, you read a new book. You start over with a different book. And you might think, well, by day two, I already know what it's going to say. There there are no surprises. That's not very fun. There are no surprises in doing that kind of reading. Well, here's the surprise. You'll be surprised how much you see. You'll be really surprised at how much you didn't see the first time you read it, or even the second time you read it. And part of what you see is the development of the discussion, right? Part of what you see is a theme connected over several chapters that you wouldn't see if it's just one chapter per day. And then the next day, you remember some themes about the previous chapter, but not all of them. You connect dots better. And understand Colossians, for instance, as a letter better if you actually read it from start to finish. We won't do that this morning, but I do want to give a snapshot of the whole book. Now, that means that this week will feel a little bit more like a college classroom than other weeks. We have to get into the background of the book. And I don't know about you, but just the word background to me sounds dreadfully boring. In seminary, I had a a class, New Testament Backgrounds, and it was probably my least favorite. We had to memorize the Herodian dynasty, you know, the the family tree of Herod the Great and and all those. We'd have to, we'd present it like with a blank map, and you have to write in all the spots where these cities of the Bible are mentioned, and 
It just didn't seem very practical, didn't seem very important. Well, we won't get into that much specific information about Colossians today. I realize background to a book is not everyone's cup of tea. To be honest, it's not always my cup of tea. But let's not forget our purposes in doing that. This morning, we're trying to not just satisfy a few people's odd itch for Bible trivia or more information about Colossians that you didn't know before, but we're trying to take God's word as it was delivered to us as God's word. John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, made much about the fact that God's word was given to us as it is. In other words, there are different times in which different things were written, different genres, different authors. And he thought that God gave us that kind of Bible rather than another kind, not just one author from one time giving us the same kind of story narrative or not just an encyclopedia. You look up a topic and you can see everything that's to say about this word adoption or something. He thought the Bible was given to us over various times, various authors in various genres so that we would do Bible rummaging, that we would be interested to flip pages and connect dots and think through things. And in the process, there's something of laboring to commune with the triune God and his plan. God has purposes for us to dig in his word, or to use that phrase from Owen, Bible rummaging. Now let me say a word about the sermon notes in your bulletin before we go further. What you have in the sermon notes page there is an outline of the book of Colossians, and that'll actually be the last thing we get to this morning. A lot of our time this morning will be on other things, but this is probably the most important thing for you to take home with you, and that's why it's on the sermon notes page. In fact, I hope you don't just take it home with you. I hope what you'll do is you'll fill in those three blanks you see there in your sermon notes page, and then you'll tear it off or wait to get home if you're more... uh, anal, and you'll cut it, make a nice neat line there, and you'll, you'll have that little outline in the pages of Colossians in your Bible. That way, over the next weeks and months, as we're studying this great book, you're seeing that outline. You're remembering the big picture. You're, you're seeing how this specific message ties into the whole, because the whole is important. It's not just a, a verse here and a verse there and a saying here and a favorite verse here. We need the story, we need the flow, we need the argument unfolded for us, and that's why that outline is there in your sermon notes. We'll get to that eventually. Let's first start off with some background, the Colossian context. Notice verse 1 of Colossians 1, the letter's written, it says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus at Colossae. So how did there get to be followers of Jesus in this city called Colossae? Well, unlike some other cities, like Ephesus, for instance, where we know exactly how the message of Jesus came to them because it's a story that's recorded for us in the book of Acts. With Colossae, we have no record of how the gospel first came to them. In fact, it sure seems that it wasn't through Paul, unlike Ephesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul there says that he hasn't yet seen them in person. He hasn't seen the Colossians in person when he's writing this letter. Or thumb back to chapter 1, verse 4, where he's only heard of their faith. He's heard good reports of their faith, but he hasn't seen it himself. 
it would seem from chapter 1, verse 7, that the Colossians learned the gospel through a guy named Epaphras. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. They learned the gospel through Epaphras. Now, Epaphras is named a couple of times in the book of Colossians. He's named once in that small book, Philemon. He's probably also the same guy that's mentioned in Philippians. There he's called Epaphroditus. It's kind of like Michael and Mike, long version, short version of someone's name. It's the same guy probably, but he's not mentioned in Acts. Nevertheless, most scholars would say that he's probably one of those who was converted by Paul in Ephesus in Acts 19, around there in the book of Acts. The gospel was incredibly successful by God's grace through Paul in and around Ephesus around this time. So from all we can tell, Epaphras very quietly and unspectacularly perhaps heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and left. I say unspectacularly because there's no record of it. It, Luke didn't record his conversion experience that, that probably happened there sometime in and around Acts chapter 19. He quietly and unspectacularly heard the gospel, embraced it in Ephesus, and then brought it back to his hometown of Colossae. And not just to his hometown in Colossae, but it seems based on Colossians 4.14 that he also brought it to the cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. He also seems to be pretty hands-on with the ministry there in Philippi, as I said. Simply put, this guy is all over the place, and he's highly effective by God's grace, and perhaps at first without Paul, even knowing about his work and what's going on. So how does Paul come to know about the Colossians and their hometown missionary Epaphras? Well, in the summer of 58 AD, Paul is under trial. He appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen for a trial in Rome. It's just about then that the Philippian church sends aid, probably financial resources, to Paul in Rome, and they send it to Paul by the legs of Epaphras or Epaphroditus. Likely, Epaphras first stopped off, though, in his hometown of Colossae. He was in Philippi. He's going to Rome. He stops off in Colossae, his hometown, and there he hears of a new false teaching threatening the church. So when he shows up to Rome to see Paul, he shows up with the Philippians' aid, and he shows up commending the the church in Colossae to Paul. He's got great things to tell Paul about this church. Look at verse 8. Where there Paul says, Epaphras has made known to us your love in the spirit. And Paul goes on in the next verse to say, we haven't stopped praying for you and giving thanks for you because of this great report we've heard from Epaphras. But Epaphras also tells Paul of this concern of false teaching that's rubbing up against the Colossian church. So Paul eventually sends another messenger by the name of Tychicus back, probably with three letters at the same time. The letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, and then that small personal letter of Philemon. 
probably sending them all at the same time. In fact, some scholars suggest that the Ephesian letter is referred to in Colossians 4.16. Look at Colossians 4.16. Where Paul says there, when this letter, the letter of Colossians, which we're reading, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, why did I say that that's referring to the Ephesian letter when it says the letter from Laodicea? Well, we can't take the time to go into that this morning and explain why it might be called different things. The point I want to make here is that this letter, this unknown letter, seemingly unknown letter to us in chapter 4 of Colossians, probably is the Ephesians letter, and then those three letters of Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon are very much related and probably sent at the same time. That brings us to the issue of authorship. Now, hold on. I know that this is boring for some of you, right? I mean, you know, here's the culmination, authorship. And you think, oh, I thought, you know, we were getting somewhere and now we're on another background investigation about the author. And it's Paul, right? And that's what it says. Verse 1, Paul wrote this. He's with Timothy. But here's where I want to just talk about authorship for a little bit in order to confirm this letter's authenticity. Because liberal scholars suggest that this wasn't written by Paul, even though it begins by saying, by Paul. In fact, of the New Testament books which bear Paul's name, this book, Colossians, is probably the book most thought to be written by someone else, at least by liberal scholars. So they think this is a fake, it's a forgery, it's someone wanting to sound like Paul. I still haven't yet figured out why anyone would want to encourage a church with a fake letter by Paul. I mean, there, there still is that thou shall not lie part of the Ten Commandments that seems valid, right? To, to think that you're sort of promoting the cause of Christ by putting someone else's name on it just seems odd to me. But there are more reasons to think that this letter is genuinely from Paul First, we had to talk about the reasons why some think it's not from Paul. They say the style of language in Colossians is more labored, and they would say the language, the actual terminology, seems quite different than other Pauline letters. And then they say the doctrinal emphases that we see in Colossians are different from the other known Pauline books. Well, an obvious and simple reply to these concerns is that Paul's style and his language and his doctrinal emphases are different in Colossians because there are different purposes for writing Colossians than there are other books. So Philemon is a very personal letter and doesn't deal with doctrinal issues so much. Ephesians is a very doctrinal-oriented kind of book But really, scholars believe that it's kind of like a general theological exposition. You could almost think of Ephesians as a mini-Romans. If you know that Romans is kind of Paul's fullest theological exposition, Ephesians is sort of the six-chapter version of it. It's not written for any other purpose than to be something like what one scholar says, his swan song toward the end of his life. Colossians is different because, 
Well, here comes a $2 word for you. It's polemic or polemical. Did you know that word? It's written to defend Christianity against certain attacks. It's written to critique. It's written to point out falsehood. It's not written as a general exposition of doctrine like Ephesians. It's written with something pointed in mind. And so Paul uses the language of these false teachers, apparently, to try to defend the biblical truth. And that's why he uses words that he wouldn't use in Ephesians. He's taking the words of the false teachers and then putting them on their ear, you could say. So these false teachers talk about the fullness that can be had, spiritually speaking, in something besides Christ. And so Paul talks about fullness as being totally in Christ. Paul talks about philosophy in Colossians, and he doesn't elsewhere. He uses the word asceticism in Colossians, and he doesn't elsewhere. But it's because he's addressing a falsehood that these terms relate to. Now, what's funny is that almost everyone agrees, even the most liberal that Paul wrote Philemon. But Philemon and Colossians go hand in hand. Listen to all the people who are with Paul, both in Philemon and in Colossians. He lists Luke and Demas and Aristarchus and Mark and Epaphras, at least five. So apparently Philemon and Colossians are written at the same time, in the same context, with the same group of co-laboring friends around him. They're both genuine. The point is that Colossians is reliable. If it's not written by Paul, and it says at the beginning that it's written by Paul, then rip it out and throw it away. It doesn't need to be in our Bibles. But it says Paul, and we believe that it is Paul for good reason. That's the authorship. Now let's get a little more close to home and close to where we feel comfortable with talking about the theme, the theme of the letter. I would describe the theme of Colossians like this. Jesus Christ is the preeminent Lord and the all-sufficient Savior. I think you need both of those. Preeminent Lord, all-sufficient Savior. The key verse for this is Colossians 1.18. The key verse, I think, for the whole book because it speaks of this concept of Christ being preeminent. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. What does preeminent mean? Well, we don't use that word much, but you might know the word eminent. A king is eminent. It means majestic. It means lofty. Christ is eminent. What does it mean that he's preeminent? It doesn't mean before he's eminent. It means that he's first eminent. He is the first of all eminence in this world. What it means is that Christ is over all. Like some translations have, instead of the word preeminent or preeminence, they say he would have the first place in everything. Not the first place in matters of religion. Not the first place as it pertains to our salvation, but then there are other things. That he might have the first place in everything. Like it's worded in Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To him be the glory forever. From him, through him, and to him. Or in the Old Testament, God says, I am the Lord and there is none besides me. He's the Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's that kind of preeminent Lord. He's that kind of all-sufficient Savior. In other words, the message of the book of Colossians is Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. The hope for my soul, the hope for the world, ultimately is Jesus plus nothing. Remember what we said about what got Paul to write this letter in the first place. News that he had received from Epaphras about a certain false teaching in Colossae. And it's that false teaching that leads Paul into this exposition, this unfolding of Christ's all-sufficiency and his preeminent lordship. He's addressing a problem that has basically existed in every ancient, modern, and postmodern culture. Another $2 word for you, syncretism. Paul's addressing syncretism. Do you know that word? Syncretism is the mixing of this and that, whatever this is and whatever that is. For us in the context of the Bible and in Christ, religion, faith, syncretism is the blending of anything with Jesus. So maybe for those in Colossae, there was the possibility that there would be a syncretism of Jesus and the Roman government. Or Jesus and new secret information that isn't in the Bible. Or Jesus plus philosophy. Jesus plus Jewish legalism. We'll see that in just a bit. Or Jesus plus man-made rules. Today, syncretism can take many different forms. So people might say today, I like Jesus and he's my savior and I trust the Bible, but my Mormon neighbor really does family well. Despite his white short sleeve dress shirt, he really does family well. And so I can learn from him here or Jesus is God, but Oprah's really smart and successful got great magazine covers and great book recommendations. And so <laughs> Oprah won't lead you astray. You can trust Oprah. Or maybe it's just becoming a Christian and yet keeping parts of my mysticism from my background. Keeping parts of perhaps Roman Catholicism that I don't want to shed yet. Or perhaps parts of my Native American spirituality adding Jesus to that. These, friends, are synchristic, syncretistic. But the hope for my soul and the hope for the world ultimately isn't any of these. It's Jesus plus nothing. Now, let's talk about the outline. The outline that you have on your sermon notes page, take a look there. What we're going to see is three sections to these four chapters. So chapter one provides us with some basis for Christ's preeminence. It's what we believe. We could call it believing in Christ's preeminence. And then chapter two, we'll get into the meat, the main purpose for the book. It's defending Christ's preeminence. 
And then chapters 3 and 4 make up this last section about living out Christ's preeminence. So we'll go through each of those individually. Remember, Paul is addressing this issue of a false teaching there in Colossae, and it's a false teaching that is saying something about Christ plus these things. And Paul's argument against that is Christ plus nothing. He'll get to that in chapter 2, but he starts out with some things that need to be held to and followed in and grown in and trusted forever. It's what we believe about Christ and his preeminence. It starts with what I would call his preeminence in our experience. The beginning of chapter 1, look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Paul says there, from the day we heard it, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Look for the themes of preeminence. Look for how this is a fleshing out and a growing in in appreciation of his preeminence. Verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the preeminent Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. I don't know what else to call this, but a growing in, an experience of, an appreciation for the preeminence of Christ. Through his blood, yes, in redemption, yes, but in the Christian life growing in a knowledge of and an experience of his lordship. And then Paul sort of moves back in verse 15 to talk about creation, his preeminence in creation. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Again, watch for the preeminent themes. For by him all things were created. Not some things, all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whether spiritual or physical, whether here today or gone tomorrow, all things were created through him and for him. He is before them all, and in him they all hold together. They exist because he says so, and when he says so they will cease to exist. He is preeminent in creation, not the Roman government, not this false teaching. There's also his preeminence in the church, beginning with verse 18, where Paul says, as we read already, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's the preeminence of God in the incarnation. Jesus being born as a man. And then verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's clear Paul goes on to talk about the church and its unity and its, its perseverance, its faith, and how he prays for that church is that they continue to grow in the experience of the preeminence of Christ. 
The preeminent Christ in creation, the preeminent Christ in his church and in our redemption. And then really the last section here of chapter 1 is Paul talking more autobiographically, giving us a personal dimension to how the preeminence of Christ is then fulfilled in Paul's ministry, how he wants it to spread and flow through Paul in the world and through the church on and on. That's believing in Christ's preeminence. Those are some basics that lay the groundwork about Christ's preeminence. But they lead to chapter 2, the real reason Paul's writing, to defend Christ's preeminence. And you notice there in your outline, three things that were threatening the preeminence of Christ, possibly there in the church of Colossae. You see his preeminence versus empty philosophy. You see his preeminence versus Judaistic ceremonialism. I don't know what else to call it. There's a Jewish kind of legalism there that Paul is warning about. And then there's preeminence versus man-made rules. Three different things going on here, but they kind of come from one body of bad doctrine, maybe one source, one false teacher or a group of false teachers. That's why Paul can talk about it as a philosophy singular, not philosophies plural. He's not so much talking about different threats, but one threat that is facing this church and it has these different components to it, different fingers to the one heresy. So part of it is empty philosophy. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now we don't know what this philosophy or this knowledge was exactly, except that it's empty, except that it's a human tradition, except that it is not what they were taught. It's not what has established them in the faith. It is not according to Christ. It is according to the physical elements of this world. It's an empty philosophy. And then he talks about this thing I call Judaistic ceremonialism. Look just at a couple of verses in this section. Verse 16 He says to the Colossian church, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all Jewish things from the Old Testament, food laws, uh, regard to festival, that would be a yearly celebration, new moon, that'd be a monthly celebration, Sabbath, that would be a weekly celebration. These, he says in verse 17, are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So some of this heresy just came straight out of left field. It's made up stuff that Paul can say is empty philosophy. Other parts of it came from the Old Testament and should have ceased in Christ because Christ is the fulfillment of these things. But these false teachers were saying, Christ is good. Christ, sure, is a, is, is a savior. But the real spiritual living is to be found in these Old Testament law principles and celebrations. 
It's Judaistic ceremonialism, and Paul says that threatens Christ's preeminence. It's Jesus plus nothing. So do man-made rules. Look at verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, a word you may not be familiar with. Asceticism is the belief that the physical world is innately evil and therefore any way to get away from the physical and into the spiritual is a way to free ourselves from evil. So the physical is bad, therefore there's even the view that you would punish the physical. You would deny yourself pleasure. You would beat yourself in the most extreme versions of asceticism. Paul says about this, these man-made rules, they're ascetic. It's the worship of angels, he says. There are people going on in detail about visions. They're puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. And by doing so, they're not holding to the head, which is Christ. They're actually not in the body. Look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. They'd made up laws, made up new rules. This food is bad, this is okay. Don't do this, this is pleasure, stay away. Man-made rules that really not only are a fake spirituality, they have consequences for the right view of Christ. You see, if the physical world is innately evil, then we can't have a physical savior, can we? And that's why there's so much Christology, we call it. There's so much about Christ here in this book of Colossians because you start heading down this path of physicality being bad and pretty soon you don't have a physical Christ. Paul maintains that it was in his body that the fullness of deity dwelled. In his body, he's stressing body here. These false teachers offered a hidden, deeper knowledge, what later came to be known as Gnosticism, another $2 word for you there. Gnosticism, knowledge, hidden knowledge. In the second and third century, Gnosticism became a big problem in the world, a big problem for the church. What you have here in the first century is an early form of it, sort of a foreshadow of the Gnosticism to come. And it very much said, look, the Bible's fine, but I've got the secret We found the secret. Here's the real stuff. I know the Bible. I know those letters say this or that about Jesus, but we really know. We really know what the angels do. We really know how to defeat the evil spirits of this age and where authority and power dwell. They went outside the sufficiency of God's word in order to find some sort of whispered secret information, inside information, that didn't get them anywhere. In fact, it led them astray. They thought they had special protection through communion with and even worship of angels. They thought that there was a spirituality and power to be had in denying the goodness of the flesh. 
and God's gift of pleasure. But Paul tells the Colossians, they are already complete. They're already complete in Christ. They already, chapter 1, verse 12, have qualified themselves to share in the inheritance, not by what they've done, but because of what Christ has done. They are already, verse 13, delivered from the domain of darkness, not through a secret information spirituality, not through an ascetic spirituality that hates the flesh, denies the flesh the physicality of this world, but through Christ. They have already attained fullness because Christ comes in fullness. And to go outside of Christ for any of this is to detach yourself from the head. The things of Colossians, the themes in it are majestic and glorious, and life-giving. And that's what leads Paul then to flesh it out in chapters 3 and 4 by talking about living out the, the preeminence of Christ. And just quickly, he shows how Christ's preeminence is demonstrated in your new identity, your new citizenship, your new place of mind even at the beginning of chapter 3. Christ's preeminence is to be lived out in the church's unity. And he gives practical suggestions for how that unity is to be pursued. Christ's preeminence is to be shown in your home and at the workplace, whether you're a boss or a worker. His preeminence is displayed in our proclamation of his saving preeminence. And then the the whole book wraps up with a a discussion about Christ's preeminence in service, talking about this servant doing this and that servant doing that. And and Paul is commending these servants, acknowledging their work in the church and his thankfulness to God for them. But again, you see just here, even in the discussion of service, hints about the preeminence of Christ. Christ is all. This letter, nearly 2,000 years old now, is so relevant for today. We don't have the Colossian heresy facing us, but we have things that are so much like it, and we'll see many of those things in the upcoming weeks and months as we study Colossians. We'll see so many things facing the church in America in the 21st century that are reminiscent of what the Colossian church was facing in the first century. And regardless of what era we live in, regardless of what church we're in, and regardless of what enemies the church faces, every church of every age needs that message hammered into the remembrance that Christ is enough that Christ will not have rivals, that Christ plus nothing equals everything. Tullian Chivigian, pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, put it like that. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then he also said, everything Minus Jesus equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
But everything this world has to offer minus Jesus is nothing. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Is that your hope? Have you come to see Christ this morning, perhaps for the first time, as a glorious Lord, as an all-sufficient Savior, and that his blood upon the cross, his death in your place, is enough for you to be forgiven, for you to be reconciled to God, for you to be restored to the worship and fellowship that God created for you to be in? I hope you believe that, and if you don't, Let us know how we can help to answer those questions. Keep reading these pages until Christ becomes glorious and beautiful and strong and enough for you. Keep reading until you see. Christian, are you adding to Jesus? Are you maybe subtly And one side of your brain, one side says, Christ is enough. I know he's enough, but we frequently think that he's not. It's Jesus plus ease to make me happy or for me to grow in the faith. Jesus plus a little more. Jesus plus the comfort of this tradition. Jesus plus this new thing because, oh, the Bible and the Holy Spirit just don't seem so spectacular. Perhaps you know that there's an instinct within you, an unhealthy instinct that craves something new, something you hadn't seen before, when really the answer is Christ is sufficient. And keep reading, keep praying, and keep taking the Lord's Supper, keep meeting with the church. He is showing himself preeminent in these simple things, in these old things, so that he gets the glory Not our inventions, not this new gimmick, not this new 12-step process. Jesus plus nothing is everything. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this book, and we thank you that Paul wrote with such passion and clarity And we thank you that because your word is alive, it speaks to us today like it spoke to that Colossian church almost 2,000 years ago.